Welcome to Fatal Error, episode 23. I'm Saroosh Kanlu. And I'm Chris Dazanbeck. Before we get started with our topic today, uh, we just want to let everybody know and ask politely, uh, we have a Patreon. And uh, if you support the Patreon, it's five bucks a month, you get extra episodes. So if you've only been seeing odd-numbered episodes in your feed, the reason for that is all the even-numbered episodes are in Patreon. So if you want Double the Fatal Error, uh, you can do that. It's five bucks a month. You'll get access to the whole back catalog, and you'll be able to get caught up on all the interesting things that uh, we've been talking about over there. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, this is just a way for us to start recouping a lot of the costs that we've been paying in terms of uh, editing and equipment uh, to put this podcast together. And uh, in a little bit of a change from season one, we've been recording one episode every week and only posting uh, episodes on the uh, main public feed that you are that you may be subscribed to every other week. So you're missing out on half the episodes we've recorded now. Uh, we would like to keep the podcast itself ad-free, and this is a, a way to help us do that. Yeah. So, and also to our Patreon uh, supporters and those who decide to back us, we really appreciate it. You are the ones who make this podcast uh, possible, and uh, yeah, it's... Just means a lot to us that you would uh, you would fork over your hard-earned money. Yeah, thank you. We really do appreciate it. Yeah. So on to today's topic, which is one that's been sitting in our episode ideas list for quite a while, and that is Objective C versus Swift. It's been sitting in our episode ideas file for so long that I think Chris forgot what exactly it was we were going to talk about. I think that there was some sort of argument or disagreement, and so we decided to put this on the list. And then uh, I've completely forgotten what it was i don't remember the exact uh the exact thing that we were disagreeing about i do that there's a thing that i see in the community which i think is where our discussion started which is that objective c is over objective c is the old way swift is better than objective c in every way and uh you know i think with any broad sweeping categorical statements like that in programming there's going to be cases where it's wrong and so some of the stuff that i'd like to talk about with this is like where does Objective-C shine versus where does Swift shine? Um, how do we write Swift code to be Swifty, and how do we write Objective-C code to be Objective-C-esque? All right, so I was wondering if you were going to try to say Objective-C-E. I'm, gl- I'm glad you came up with Objective-C-esque. That was a nice little, nice little uh, detour I took there. Yeah. So... Uh, I guess let's dive right in then. So uh, I've been writing Swift full-time for the last year or so at this point. Yeah, I think a year and a half for me, a little under a year and a half. So maybe where do we want to start here? Things that Swift excels at or things that Swift brings to the table? Let's talk about metaprogramming. (laughs) Okay, so no then. (laughs) What is your feeling about metaprogramming? Uh, I think metaprogramming is a useful and powerful tool. I think that it can be done safely. I think that Objective-C's model for metaprogramming comes with some sharp edges that we need to be aware of. Yeah, I think that's pretty much true. Right when Swift started to become popular is right around when I started learning about those rough edges, those sharp edges, rather, of of Objective-C, and um, started to use them kind of to my advantage and taking situations where I would, like, take some API response, which would be, like, a a string, uh, sort of like an enum, and I would like map that into a class, and I would initialize that class. And so I'd have like a really rich like polymorphic uh, object with like a protocol that would say like this is like 
it was like a richer enum. Like an Objective C, we only had C based enums. Yeah. It was kind of like a rich way to do enums, and then it was like a metaprogramming way to get from just the string that the API would respond with to like an actual class that I could like instantiate. And it was a nice little trick, and it saves a little bit of code here and there, and I really was starting to get used to it and starting to like it, and then along came Swift. And Swift totally like upended a lot of that stuff. That's definitely true. We do lose some some convenient or, or neat tricks like that that we can play uh, that we could play in Objective C when we move to Swift. I'm curious. Did you ever write any metaprogramming stuff in Objective C? Anything I, basically involving like NS selector from string, uh, maybe perform selector, although that can sometimes be not that metaprogramming. NS class from string. That's a big one. Or like instance where you can like get implementations for specific selectors and like. Yeah, I have done some of that. I had a, I forget exactly what my use case was because this was a few years ago, but I've worked pretty extensively with the uh, like forwarding machinery mm, or yeah, message yeah. forwarding uh, message forwarding machinery that Objective C has. So, yeah, I mean, I can definitely appreciate some of the use cases that that there are for uh, for this sort of rich metaprogramming support. Yeah, and that stuff, it. I really do think that it changes the way that you write code. Like, if you have a Ruby developer, Ruby has very rich metaprogramming. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you ask a Ruby developer to solve a problem and you ask a Swift developer to solve a problem, uh, you're going to end up with, with depending on the actual problem itself, but, like, something like an enum that comes down from the API as a string, like, the Ruby developer might try to do some kind of, like, class-based instantiation yeah. uh, based on its name, and the uh, Swift developer will probably make, like, a string raw representable enum and, and map it that way. And it really changes the way that you solve problems, I think. I think that's definitely true. Although, I was, like, there weren't a lot of cases, I feel like, in most Objective-C code bases where you actually solve problems this way, where you usually would reach for these tools. Yeah, I would say the biggest one was any JSON mapping, which, you know, JSON mapping solved problem. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, there was, like, Mantle and, like, Jay-Z object mapper, and I even wrote my own. I think tons of people wrote their own. Yeah. Um, where, basically, it would loop through the keys of your JSON dictionary, figure out which keys that corresponded to on your destination object, and then, like, use key value coding to say, like, assign this value for this key with this name. And it would, like, set that property for you. Yeah. So what are the disadvantages of having this kind of power of, and of writing code like that in Objective-C? Um, the big one is you don't know if you did something wrong until runtime. Even right. if you are pretty good at programming and you don't ship any bugs, you still will never catch a bug before it hits the runtime. Yeah. Because you're kind of programming at the level of the runtime rather than programming at the level of code. Mm-hmm. Um, I got into a big disagreement on Twitter about what exactly metaprogramming is. Which is kind of, it's a tough thing to answer. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't want to get too, too deep into that discussion, but basically, like, you're, you're, you're programming the, me- the runtime directly rather than programming in the language which generates that runtime. And so you're not going to be able to figure out anything until that code actually runs and you see, like, what happens. So your loop is a little bit looser in terms of, like, you just don't know if you did, did something yeah. wrong until the program actually gets a chance to run. There are sharp edges of, like, if you try to assign a property to a value that is not the right type, uh, the runtime won't complain. It'll happily assign that value. And then when you go to use it, you'll realize, oh, no, I have, have you know done the wrong thing here. And that crash, you will probably notice, is often far away in the code base from where this bug actually exists. Exactly, yeah, yeah. One of the things I really do appreciate about Swift is it, it has a very early crash-early mentality, which is like, if something's not going to work, 
it's not going to work where at like some start point rather than some crazy endpoint. Right. Or it won't compile. Right. Where, yeah. Um, which is even before a start point, which is even nicer. Yeah. yeah. And so none of that is to, none of that is to say that, well, because that stuff's impossible in Swift and then I reject Swift or whatever. It's just to say that like a problem such as JSON parsing that I would solve with metaprogramming in uh, Objective-C, um, the derogator solution for it now is basically using type inference and um, basically throwing errors and using that mm-hmm. really concise code that describes how to map from your uh, JSON object space to your yeah. domain object space. I'm not convinced that doing that explicitly is a bad thing, honestly. In what, what Can you expand on that a little bit? What do you mean by explicitly? Like having to write, like writing that, code. writing out that, like this property gets uh, gets populated from this field in JSON. Right. So the Objective C way, you would always you would have like a dictionary, like a class property that would like map between your JSON key paths and your like objects property path. Right. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So you have that code. Like you have to have that code somewhere. Let me ask you this: Java has the ability to have um, they call them annotations. So each property you can say like. If you're working with JSON, this thing is going to have a key. Like, let's say it's a latitude property. The, the key might be lat, uh, L-A-T. And so you use that basically to, like, not necessarily generate code, but work with properties, and you can enumerate them and then, like, get all their annotations and find specific annotations to do specific things. Do you consider that as explicit as the Swift way or as metaprogramming as the, the Objective-C way or somewhere in the middle? That seems more like the Objective-C metaprogramming uh approach to me because I mean at a high if you squint it kind of looks it all kind of looks more or less the same yeah but, it's very blurry I think well in the Swift model these things can get uh, like these things can be type checked ahead of time right right everything except for like the actual JSON part of it so right if you are missing a key or if you have a key and you expect it to be a string but it's actually an integer like that stuff will mess up yeah I don't know I guess that's that's weird right yeah 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 I, maybe these aren't like if you're already writing a dictionary to map JSON keys to your properties. Right. This is just like an implementation. It's a different implementation, right? Right. And whether you choose to write that implementation in terms of basically a dictionary that maps those things or code that maps those things is kind of up to you. The benefit of the metaprogramming way is also you get code to go backwards for free, back to a dictionary, which is not that useful, but that that depends on your use case. In a lot of cases. Like you never transform uh, one of your domain objects back into JSON and send it up to a server. Right. You're probably calling some API endpoint that does specific things with with other properties that you pass up. Yeah. One thing that doing it the sort of Swift way gets you is that if you're initializing uh, like an object or a struct with things that you expect to get from JSON, like. It's not possible, or you will catch earlier the case where something that you expected to be in JSON isn't there, right? Not necessarily. No? Right? So you could write the Objective-C code such that if the... I don't know if you have access to the types at this level, but you could basically say if this key is missing, just crash, right? You could say you could say stuff like that. So uh, that's, that's dependent sort of on the implementation of how your object mapper works. I guess so. So then, so, and now you're annotating the, now you're writing this metadata that says map this JSON field to this property. And this has to be like, this, this is not optional. Yeah. And at this point, this is looking more and more like you're uh, more and more similar to what you'd write in Swift. Yeah, that's a great point. 
That's a great point. Is in Objective C, we never really had a way to say. I, I at least the object member I wrote, I don't know what other people wrote, but you never, you didn't have a way to say like, and this key, if it's not there, do this thing, or if it is there, do this other thing. Right. I've, it's been so long since I looked at any object mappers in Objective C. I feel like there may be some way to, in some of them, you may be able to add like a hook that runs after it reads or doesn't read right, some right, key, right. but. So what were we going to disagree on in this episode? I'm not sure. This episode's turning out great. <laughs> Objective-C's metaprogram was always really weird because you couldn't do everything, right? In, in Ruby, you can generate n- brand new functions that you could call because there's n- those functions don't need to exist at compile time. So on active record base, for like active record in Rails, if you have a property called title, you get a class method called find by title for free. So, like, as long as you have this property, you get this method for free. You yeah. can call that method from anywhere, and it's fine. But in Objective-C, you can't do that because at, at compile time, that function won't exist. And so you won't be able to even compile a program that calls it. But what you could do is you could do the opposite, where basically you would say, at runtime, I'm going to generate this selector. I'm going to generate this function name, this message and send it to this object. And the object, being basically the programmer, can choose whether or not to implement that message and mm-hmm. respond to it. Uh, and if they do, I'll use that. And if not, I'll like fall back to some default. And this kind of, this is where like the really sharp edges come in. There's just so much room for error here that can't be checked ahead of time. Like, yeah. Would you be surprised to know that core data does its very thing? No, not at all. Like, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. So core data is validators where they basically pass you a property. And I think it's in out. And they also pass you an error. Let's you, if you choose to implement, let's say, again, you have a, a core data object with a title on it. If you implement the method validate title, and they'll pass you, let's say, the string for the title and an error, you can choose to do whatever you want there. So you can choose mm-hmm. to uh, populate that error with something, at which point, like, the save will fail, I think. Um, I don't know coordinated that well or you could choose i think to even update the title so if the title comes in like not long enough you could like pad it or something that's a bad example i don't know something but um there was code that did this and i I also wrote code to do this um oh for for configuring table cells i had this very meta programming okay um table view controller i know some of the folks who had to work with that after i left and i deeply apologize to them but the code (laughs) seemed like a really good idea at the time so I'm glad that you mentioned you deeply apologize to them because this brings up another uh, so another concern which I have, which is the maintainability over the long term of code that's that's written like this in this style. Um, in the core data example, you have the name of a validator function that is tied to the name of a property. Right. And if for some reason the name of that property changes, the name of the validator function doesn't change nothing's going to catch that until something blows up way later because an invalid name got into the system somehow. There's, it, it's almost like um, stringly typed programming, right? There's, they're just tying things together just because something else happens to exist that has the right name just seems so fragile to me. Yeah, and, it's a very, very great point. And like, it may be something that you'll remember when you're maintaining the system, but the poor developer who inherits this this system three years later and has to maintain it, like there's uh, having all that sort of like uh, magic in the code base, frankly, is just uh, is hard to explore and and maintain. 
Yeah, it's interesting that you call it magic. Um, there's that quote about how basically magic is the opposite of boilerplate. And if you increase one, you decrease the other, right? Yeah. Um, and part of the point of the library that I had written to do all this, like metaprogramming magic with table views and stuff, was to decrease the boilerplate. And it worked. It was good. But again, magic. Like it was doing some some stuff down there. Yeah. Um, and the, yeah, and and I think it. The, I had been working a lot with Rails developers at the time that I wrote this. So this library is open source. It's called Instant Coco. Anybody can look at it. Oh, um, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, and that has the object mapper in it. That has all the like table view metaprogramming magic. Okay. I was working with Rails developers, and I was like, they have something that like lets them do tons of interesting things with very little code. Um, and we, you know, we can debate simple versus easy again, but it just seemed like Objective-C never got that. And I tried to write something that would fill that role. And it did to some degree. My hope, though, was that it would have any kind of traction, that people would like, actually want to use it. And, you know, if, if I think the community is more familiar with that kind of thing, then it's like not so weird to, to have code like that. And this was also all before Swift when I wrote this thing. So, yeah. So this is something that I was just going to say that I hadn't really thought about until now. Part of the reason probably for this is not uh, language idioms necessarily, but community idioms. In the Rails world, like Rails developers, uh, even fairly new Rails developers know and learn about uh, what sort of magic happens and where the magic is and how to uh, like how to use that magic to their advantage. Whereas, and it's very much like a uh, almost a community standard, right? Whereas we don't have any sort of standard like that from uh, any code samples from Apple, any like tutorials from Apple, which are where most people at least start learning about iOS. There aren't, aren't really any commonly accepted like idioms or patterns. Uh, very relatively few like Objective-C frameworks make use of this kind of stuff. And uh, maybe, maybe that's part of the reason that uh, when you do come across this in an Objective-C code base, it feels more like a mysterious magical maintenance nightmare uh, at least to me, than it, it would in the Rails world. Although I also, as a as an inexperienced, very inexperienced Rails developer, I always like kind of struggle uh, whenever I'm thrown into a Rails code base. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very that's an absolutely fair point. P- part of my feeling with this whole library was like we shouldn't be afraid of metaprogramming. Like, there's another tool that we can use, and in as much as we can use it to write less code, um, like if you can write a table view that's right that's correct once. Yeah, it will have sharp edges that first time you write it, but theoretically, if that abstraction is solid, you can reuse that. Same with an object mapper or anything else. But yeah, I I absolutely feel you that. It was just like your community, like, I think map was very similar as well. iOS 4, I think, was when blocks came out. Nobody knew what map was, um, even if there were people in other programming disciplines who were very familiar with it. For us, it was weird. And it's only, I think, once... Really, once Swift came out, it was like part of the standard library that people felt like much more comfortable like working with that stuff and writing that stuff. I remember when I saw it, I was like, "This is voodoo magic nonsense that I do not need." And yeah. now, like to try to write code without it would be, I mean, impossible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so one thing that I think we both wanted to mention, going back to the example of the validators, maybe maybe validators. Yeah, is that some of the things that we would achieve with metaprogramming, we can sort of achieve with code generation with tools like sorcery that provide us with some magic in the form of uh, just automatically generated method implementations right automatic automatically generated interfaces in some cases and uh those come with the advantage that they get checked at, at compile time so if you have made some error then the compiler is much more likely to, to catch it right 
and yet it's still not something that you have to go in and write a whole lot of boilerplate yourself. Uh, that's one sort of compromise that you can make along the spectrum of, of boilerplate versus magic. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, sorcery goes a long way in, in papering over that that particular distance between Objective C and Swift. Yeah. I am a big fan. I don't ever want to go back to the world without sorcery. Um, it's really no. nice. Yeah. We're using it fairly extensively at this point in our app, uh, at least for hashable and equatable implementations and for a couple other things as well. Yeah. And, and I, I really also like that it, it draws a distinction between here. Now, right now I'm writing template code and right now I'm writing real code. Mm-hmm. And um, whereas in Objective-C, it was always, a, and in Ruby, it's very blurry. I mean, it's all just Ruby. Like you're just writing <laughs> methods and they're just doing stuff. In Objective-C, it's at least it's like some of it's C, but then some of it's also like Objective-C, like, I think like, you know, responsive selector and perform selector are just Objective-C messages, but to create a selector, that's like a C function that's just like, is free-floating. Yeah. And I really like that that it really draws a sharp distinction between here you're writing template code and here you're writing Swift code. Yeah. And I think that part of it's really nice as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So a while ago in the Swift community, there was a whole lot of grumbling about how Swift took away Objective-C's dynamis- dynamicism. I think that's right. <laughs> And uh, this was a terrible thing, and it was the end of the world, and I'm being a little bit dramatic here, clearly. That's right. But uh, I haven't heard so much of that lately, and uh, I'm not sure if maybe I tuned out of some part of the community accidentally, or if we're really hearing less of that as people get more used to writing things in idiomatic Swift. Do you have any thoughts on, on which one of those things happened? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a little bit of a fever pitch just because a lot of people were talking about it. Um, and I think the Swift, like the core team or whatever, did a good job of saying, like, look, these features are here. You can bridge them from Objective C. If you write, if you use the Objective C runtime, it's not any less Swifty. It's still Swift. Mm-hmm. And sort of like we want to add these features back. They're just not priorities right now. Yeah. And, like I don't think they're all, all going to come back. Like I don't think we're going to get like a fully, um, fully like message passing dynamic, uh, dynamic dispatch language. Which to me is a shame. I mean, I think dynamic dispatch is really good, but a lot of this stuff, I think we are going to get back. I think we're going to get really good reflection. I think there's like we have okay reflection right now. I think we're going to get better reflection. They talked about macros a couple of times, which I think function similarly to like how we think of sorcery templates. Yeah, I think that when they say macros, they don't mean like C macros. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you said was uh, you think dynamic dispatch is really good. And I kind of want to dig into, because this is one of the things that they came up again and again, was the distinction between like static and dynamic dispatch. And this is something that I think the Swift team argued, and this is something that I don't fully understand. Why is dynamic dispatch in and of itself a, like, a feature that you're looking for? Is that really what's important, or is being able to achieve like certain higher-level patterns really what you're looking for here? For me, I mean, I don't need to implement a responder chain. Like, UIKit will have to do that, and they'll figure out how to make it work. I don't need to implement, like, you know, button tapping and stuff. Like, UIKit will figure that stuff out for me and provide a good pattern. The thing that I'm, the thing that bothers me about the dynamic dispatch thing is that, as far as I'm concerned, like dynamic dispatch is the right answer because it lets you think of the thing that you're sending a message to as an entity, not as a like thing that has many faces. And depending on what face is pointing at you, that's the response you're going to get. Does that make sense? Like, let's say you have a, a class that conforms to a protocol, and then that class is subclassed with dynamic dispatch. 
no matter if you have a reference to that object as a protocol or as the superclass or as a subclass, you're always going to get the same response. It, you just have the thing. You don't know what the thing is, but you have the thing. And as far as I'm concerned, making it static or vtable dispatch is fine, but that's basically an optimization on that. So if you know the class is final and you know that no protocol is going to override anything, then great. Go ahead and optimize away that dynamic dispatch call. Yeah. Inline it, do whatever you want. But don't make it so that if I have a reference to the object as a protocol, I'm going to get some totally different response to if I have the object as its concrete class. That is the thing that Swift does right now, and it's super confusing. It causes bugs all the time, and um, I find it really frustrating. And that's like, that to me is a bug rather than just like an unimplemented feature or uh, or whatever. What do you mean? I might be missing something here. What do you mean you get a, like a different response if you have a... Okay, so so imagine this. Um, there's a good blog post about this. I'll have to find it. Um, is this the the thing where like depending if you have a protocol that has a, uh, a default implementation? Yes. Then, so so if you have a uh, for, so for the listener, if you have a protocol where there's a function on the protocol called foo, and that um, and and the function is just in the default implementation and not in the protocol body itself. Then if you override that function on the conforming type, like a class, if you call foo, the behavior of it depends on if you have a reference to the object as the protocol, because that's statically dispatched. So at compile time, it only knows that it's the protocol thing, so it can only send it as a protocol. Or uh, you might have it as the, as, as, uh, the object itself. You, you know that you have that like, concrete type. And so it will statically dispatch to that thing. And so because of that, like, and then if you subclass, it gets even more complicated. Please don't subclass. Are you, I kind of feel like you're, maybe not confusing, you're, you're complexing <laughs> the, like, implementation detail versus the, like, behavior of the language, right? Like, it, given this exact same scenario, what would you expect to behave differently if, use Swift were entirely like dynamically dispatched. Yeah, the reason like I... there's still two competing implementations for this method, right? Right. One on the protocol and one on the class. Right. The thing is that if you do declare the function signature within the protocol itself, not just in the extension, it is it is completely unambiguous which one it calls. It's not undefined behavior. It's very defined. It always calls the one you declared basically quote like after, which would be the one in the concrete type. Which is the one you want, because the concrete type is specializing the abstract type. Right. Um, okay. I think that's the correct behavior in every case. The problem is that if you remove that function signature from the protocol, then a totally different thing happens. And yeah, that is kind of mixing up behavior for implementation, but I don't know what to call that behavior other than by the name of its implementation, which is dynamic dispatch. Call I mean, it message passing if you like. Like, I want to know that I have a thing, and then no matter how I send a message to that thing, I'm going to get the same response. Like, if the Swift team wanted to solve this somehow and uh, implemented and changed, like, some dispatches under the hood to be dynamically dispatched, like, fine. But, I don't know, it, it kind of feels just weird to say that you really want dynamic dispatch when what you really want is, like, this specific behavior of the language yeah. to be more consistent. Behavior that kind of makes sense. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, yeah, I, I think thinking about it in terms of you're always passing a message and... If that message happens to be, if the code for that message happens to be inline, great. But that's like an optimization. That is like yeah. not the concern of the developer. But with optimizations, it has to behave correctly 100% of the time. Yeah. It can't behave correctly 99.9% of the time. Like one in a thousand, do something totally weird. Like, and thinking about it as 
message passing with with optimizations to me makes more sense than like well sometimes we're dynamic sometimes we're static sometimes we're vtable my my point is just that you can uh it's possible to want consistent and uh, sort of easy to understand behavior without uh i mean without even knowing the reason that like under the hood that this behavior is different right right, right. i don't disagree with that at all and if swift were just structs like it wouldn't matter like uh, there were no protocols there were no subclasses it was just final classes and structs it wouldn't matter what kind of dispatch you have because you always know what kind of objects you have but um because we have those things we need behavior that we can reason about yeah Uh, another issue that we ran into with static dispatch this one's a little bit harder because it's related to operators and operators kind of have to be statically dispatched rather than messages passed to a specific object that take another object and what basically was going on was we were trying to compare two uh, sequences to see if they're the same and um that that function it's called elements equal uses the not equal operator to determine if anything is not equal and it also makes sure like you know if one runs out before the other fine Hmm. so what was going on is we had two sequences of ns objects and with ns objects the equal equal operator is designed to forward to the is equal function Right. Right. On it, it, you know, the receiver is the first op- the left hand side, and then the, the um, first parameter is the right hand side. The issue is that we didn't know that. So what you're supposed to do with an NS object is you're supposed to override is equal the function on the thing itself. But we overrode the equal equal because we're trying to be swifty. We're trying to be cool, and we needed an NS object yeah. for NS coding, right? So we're trying to be swifty. We're trying to be cool. We override um, equal equal, and the the implementation of not equal the operator is statically dispatched to equal equal. So this sequence thought it had a bunch of NS objects. And those NS objects, their static equal equal operator pointed to the equal equal or the is equal implementation for the object itself, which was based on pointer equality. So while if if the function that we were calling this like elements equal had used the equal equal operator, everything would have been fine, but it used the not equal operator, which forwarded to the equal operator and then, you know, it negated it. And then that forwarded to the is equal thing, which we hadn't implemented. So the thing that you implemented, the equal equal operator for your t- custom NS object subclass right. was never even getting called. Uh, exactly. Okay. Exactly. And so it would, it would give us these weird errors where, like, we were trying to, like, diff two arrays or something. And it was just, like, garbage was coming out. We couldn't figure out what it was. Mm-hmm. And we dug into it, and it turns out that basically if you have a reference to the objects as NS objects, equal equal would do one thing. And if you had a reference to the objects as the actual type that they were, equal equal would do a totally different thing. And that's, yeah. it was confusing. It that was, is really weird. Like, how am I, and how am I supposed to know that? Like, it's not in the Swift book. It's not in any blog posts. Like, Yeah, I don't know where it's documented it, what you're supposed to do for yeah. in Swift to implement equality for NS objects. Right. And so I wrote, uh, I wrote up a bug. I put it on bugs.swift. And Jordan Rose responded, like, hey, this is intended behavior. Like, this is how it works. And he's right. It is how it works. But it doesn't stop it from being, you know, it's confusing. Yeah. And it doesn't help me because I don't know how it's, like, I don't know how I'm supposed to know that it works that way. Yeah, that's such a, like, just pit of complexity, especially for someone who are, like, newer to the yeah. language. That would just be mind-bending. I was working with someone who's newer to the language, and they were having uh, a tough time figuring out what was going on, and I ended up having to dig in and, like, yeah. we, like, teased apart what was going on, but yeah, was a mess. So when I say, I mean, like, dynamic dispatch should be the default, it's not that it's about dynamic dispatch. It's about a dispatch model that makes sense to people that use it. 
Okay. Um, without these pitfalls. Can I rephrase dynamic dispatch in, in what you're saying then? I would as love like, to Okay. Let me, let me try really hard here. Dispatch that I don't have to worry about, but that always seems to do the right thing. Yeah. I don't like that definition because I worry that it's just like, I'll just do magically do the right thing. And it's like, well, in a lot of cases, that is kind of what Swift is aiming yeah, for, right? That's true. That's true. I feel like that's a... a and they do yeah, a good uh, job. It adds a lot of complexity, but they do a pretty good job of like yeah. having a pretty sane model for everything else. Yeah, generally speaking, they do. Um, yeah, like you can you can send, quote-unquote, messages to structs as though they were objects, and it just kind of works. Yeah. And you don't have to think about it. But, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, a hairy, it's a hairy problem, and I just don't know how to fix it other than just like give me a dispatch model that I can understand and then you optimize you optimize away anything you think you can fully optimize away like 100% cleanly otherwise please don't mess with the model that I have in my head of how this works all right I, I think that's fair yeah. yeah yeah so one of the favorite things that kept coming up over and over in the community was uh, how would the res- how would we possibly model a responder chain like thing in Swift without Objective C's uh, like method forwarding fun times. <laughs> Funtime.h. Funtime.h. What what were your thoughts on this discussion? I think the instructive thing is not necessarily run uh, not necessarily responder chains, but rather uh, NS coding. With NS coding, you need a way to you have a string of a class name and you need the class itself. Basically, need a huge table of strings to classes. It so happens that that exists already by default in the um, Objective C runtime, so you get it for free. It doesn't exist in the Swift runtime, so they built it. They needed it, so they built it. Yeah. Um, you're going to be able to do NS coding in pure Swift. It's like a weird function called like underscore class from name or something. So, like another another way to think about it is a lot of the Objective C 2.0 features came because they were needed, like the at dynamic keyword for properties, came mm-hmm. because they were needed in core data. Like, if the first party vendors need something, they're going to implement the thing that they need. Yeah. Like, I don't think we have any worry that, like, a responder chain is not going to be possible. I feel like you could probably model a responder chain-like thing in pure Swift, like, fairly straightforwardly. I forget what the problem even is with the responder chain. Yeah, me too, because I'm thinking about, like, how you could implement, like protocol with some default implementations and right. things would look pretty sane, I think. Yeah. And you do need... You might have to add one thing to your class's layout. Which you need anyway, because every every UI responder has to subclass from UI responder, so you have to right. have all those elements anyway. Uh, I think in a perfect world, like it wouldn't be a subclass. It would be a... Right, it would be a protocol. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, that seems right to me. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I don't know if it would be impossible. Like, again, dynamic dispatch comes into play. You can't static dispatch into a responder chain. The, and implementation detail, as long as I can, like, call methods on things and yeah. they happen. That's yeah, exactly. fine. Right. I've also never understood how to inject things into the responder chain. Like, I have things I would like to be able to respond to things in the responder chain. It's and a little bit. It. Yeah, it's a little. Somebody, somebody emailed me. Tell me how to do that. <laughs> oh, man. I haven't done this in a little while. I did once, in an app once, I... Uh, added something into the responder chain to like pass events from table view cells up to like a view controller. And like, that seemed like kind of a sane way to do this. Yeah. It always seemed kind of weird to have like a, uh, a bunch of blocks floating around or like have each cell have a reference back to its, like back to some delegate. 
yeah, it's all built in anyway. Like, why not? Why not just use that? Yeah, uh, I really feel like yeah, something like the responder chain could be really powerful on iOS if we actually if if it had a little bit more flexibility even, right. and if we actually used it. Yeah, I think the coordinator stuff simpler too, where the coordinator ideally yeah. would be in the responder chain as well, and as you get a touch message sent up, you catch this touch message and send up a more domain friendly message of like, yeah, this thing happened um, with this data. That could be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the, if remember, if I remember right, the thing that I did also, like I had a category method on UI events and there were some associated (laughs) objects. Like that's as long as you're doing this, something insane, go all the way. Speaking of fun time. So what are our takeaways from today? The point I was trying to make was that Objective-C is good at Objective-C things. Swift is good at Swift things. When you write code in the language, you should write like the language wants you to. But we didn't talk about any of that. <laughs> we just talked about a lot more interesting things about metaprogramming and whatnot. Well, so, yeah. Not fine with it. I just want to be really clear that that was a lot of fun, but... A lot of, yeah, fun, fun time. H. I mean, so takeaways are metaprogramming is useful and good. Uh, yes, there are some things we can't do exactly right now in Swift, but actually a lot of the common things that we might have done with metaprogramming in Objective-C are possible in Swift with, like, maybe a little bit more boilerplate right. and uh, with tools like Sorcery. I think a takeaway is that if, like, Apple has promised to enable more sort of dynamic E kind of things in Swift... And like they're probably going to implement them because, as you noted, first party vendors they want the first party vendors going to first party vendor. That's exactly right. They're going to first party vend. Then yeah, that would, that would be the verb. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't know. I still feel like a lot of the initial concern about uh, losing dynamicism in Swift is uh, like maybe maybe a little bit overblown. A little bit. You, this podcast is like a year late for this discussion. I know. Um, but yeah, I there are there are legitimately things that you cannot do in Swift. I think even with sorcery, that yeah. might not be right. But even with sorcery, there are things. You oh, there totally are. Do. Like, let's go back to method forwarding. But yeah, exactly. Like, it's uh, they're taking it's away like sharp edges that are like right. things that are hard to check and hard to maintain. And yeah. like honestly, I'm fine with that. Yeah. At the at the end of the day, it ends up being fine. And if there's something that's a real pain point, like I think one of the things one of the old Objective C um, diehards brought up was there was a time when like every event had to be passed basically via an, via an enum through one method. And then you have to do a giant switch in this method yeah. to switch between your enum and the function of the behavior that you wanted it to do, which sounds horrible. Like, <laughs> that sounds terrible. And, like, being able to send a message um, via a selector or whatever is just better. But as you can see, like, even since then, I think we got uh, pound selector and pound key path. Like, you know, those yeah. are a little bit type safer. They're, like, they enable the same behavior. Um, I don't think we're going to go back to that dark world of everything being static dispatch. No. But, yeah. All right, that's all I've got. Yeah, that's all I've got. It's going to be fine, I guess, is the answer. Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. You heard it here first from Chris and Suresh. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Uh, Later.